Let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard, as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing, obey. Amen. Okay, so first things first, show of hands, who are my artificial Christmas tree people? All right, whoa, didn't expect that many from Michigan. Do we not have conifers in Michigan? What about my, my real live, yes, got to water them every day, people. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I was talking with my wife about <laughs> how we used to get our Christmas tree when we were first married. And, and we were, we were rem- remembering how one year we actually cut down our Christmas tree from the side of the road, which I'm pretty sure is not legal, <laughs> even in Maine. Another year we purchased a Christmas tree from a guy that was selling trees. <laughs> like, I don't know if they were hot, you know, uh, in, in a parking lot, you know, outside of one of these cheap Chinese restaurants. And I can remember tying the tree onto the top of the car. And then we drove um, to our house and we got out and I found that it was no longer there. <laughs> so we went back and we got another one because they were pretty cheap. The guy was happy to see us. Now, though, when we get our tree, most years, we do what a lot of families do. We participate in this snazzy tree-buying event. Do you know what I mean? Maybe you don't. Everyone bundles up, and we go to the tree farm, right? Put on riding boots. We get in line for the hayride, and we take some selfies. We make every attempt to keep our children from throwing the hay at everyone else. And we take some selfies on the way in the hayride, smiling like we're really happy to be there. We wander through a field in the cold for an extended, 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 extended period of time until someone picks the Christmas tree that we're going to have. And then we cut down that Christmas tree with the torturously dull saw provided to us by the farm. And we haul it out and they wrap it up and they run our credit card for the exorbitant price that's paying not just for the tree, but for the farm experience. And we take a few more selfies. I remember one year I launched that tree into the truck and I looked over at my wife and said, how did we become this? How did we become this? We, we were young and innocent once. We were buying trees from parking lots. We were cutting down trees from the side of the road like renegades. 
We were plenty content to teeter a threadbare spruce into a metal tree stand. How did we become this? And sometimes this is how the great important questions of our lives jump in and insist that we take notice. We let them in with a funny story, something cute. And then those questions, they say, well, wait now. <laughs> let me stay a while. How did we become this? The question has come to visit now. And if we aren't careful, it will outstay its welcome. It will make us think way beyond silly Christmas tree experiences. How did we become this? How did we become so accustomed to senseless death? It's shattering in the deepest part of the soul. You know that little part of the soul that you hold very tightly? It's the thing that keeps you human. Even that part, fragile as crystal, is under violent attack. And if it goes, you go with it. How did we become this? How did we become so overwhelmed by those that need help? How did we become this? If you're not of our tribe, you are part of a world that finds it easy simply to say, sorry, but I see no problem here. I see no money here. I see no time to be shared. There is no room at the inn. How did we become this? How did we become so incapable of having a conversation? with those with whom we disagree. So unwilling to listen. I wonder how did we become so ambivalent to the good news of Jesus? No, really, because I believe, I truly believe that if that changed, if our ambivalence to the good news of Jesus changed, a lot of what we've become would change. I believe in the continuing, the necessity of the continual conversion of the church, that's us. Are we ambivalent? Have we become ambivalent to the good news of Jesus? And how did we become this? Believe it or not, we're not the first community to wonder, what is the world coming to? We could pick a lot of, of examples, but let's head on back to the first century in Palestine where Israel squirmed for its life under Roman rule. The Roman general Pompey, do you remember him? He captured Jerusalem for Rome in about the year 63 BC, about eight years after the slave uprising and the death of Spartacus. 
From that point forward, Judea was Rome's subject with its finances, cities, and ports all determined by the greedy empire. And for a while, the Sadducee Hyrcanus was given a leadership role, but when Caesar took hold, lots changed throughout the empire, including the eventual appointment of Herod the Great, a pro-Roman king who was prone to levy exorbitant taxes to fund his pet projects. So you can imagine then, when Herod the Great died, the community might have taken this huge deep breath of relief, hoping for, for that relief from a, from a constant burden. Which is why the three little verses about the census are so important. They're important for us to know because they indicate that the census indicates that there was, in fact, no relief from Rome in sight. The pressure was still on. Those three verses tell us that the census was ordered by Quirinius, the newly minted Roman governor who was obviously just trying to make his mark with the empire. The census would be determined be determining the financial commitment that they would have to the empire. It was another method of, of desperate squeezing on this poor community. And it prompted a revolt, one you don't usually hear about. It's not a Christmas revolt. But it did prompt a revolt by a man named Judas of Galilee who tried to compel the other Jews not to register and he even burned down houses and stole the cattle of those who did that was his response to the census and I wonder if those that followed him might have stepped back and looked at what was going on and thought to themselves how have we become this But as we know, and as I wish we could have read these two texts at the same time, as we know, while all of that was going on, God was offering a different response. And the first hearer of it was, who? Mary. And now you will conceive in your womb, she's told. And you know, she believed it. She really believed it. And because she believes it, she sings. Matthew doesn't have Mary saying anything. In Matthew, Mary is silent. But here in Luke, Mary sings. Luke has her singing not a solo aria about her own destiny, but a freedom song on behalf of the faithful poor in the land. She sings a song of, of freedom. Freedom for all who in their poverty and their wretchedness, freedom from those who will be pressed down by this census, still believe that God will make a way when there is no way. She believes it, what she's been told. Just walk through the Magnificat and you can hear her singing a song about a better future with that census in mind. 
She sings because she imagines a better future for herself. Can you imagine a better future for yourself? She sings because she imagines a better future even as she is accustomed to being kicked out and kicked around. Can you imagine a better future for those that are being kicked out and kicked around in this world, in this community? She imagines a better future and she sings on account of it because she imagines a better future for Israel. Can we imagine a better future for the place that we live? Or are we stuck in the how did we become this question? With Mary as our songstress, can we begin to ask a new question? Instead of how did we become this, which is an important self-reflective question, but one we can get stuck in, let us begin asking, what will we become? What does God have in mind for us? What will we become? Just asking this kind of question will change how we stand. It will change our posture as a community. It will make us a different kind of church, a different kind of Christian. What will we become? This question makes us better, I think, than the kind of faith tradition that so often gets put on the television and labeled as Christian. Mary's responding to Christ's arrival with a song about a better future, but Christians often celebrate this season with bickering over things like Starbucks cups. You remember that? Seems like every year there's a new controversy around the attack on Christmas. For those unfamiliar with that supposed controversy, a few years ago, a group of Christians gained great media attention, which I'm sure was their intention, by accusing Starbucks of waging a war on Christmas because they removed symbols of the season from their coffee cups, going instead with a plain red design. They removed Christmas from their cups, we were told, because they hate Jesus. Red cups. Does that sound like the kind of concern that Mary was singing about to you? But somehow this, not a community that imagines a better future, is what Christianity has become in the eyes of many. And with everything else that the world has become, we can't afford to become that. So small. So thank God we're in Advent again where we begin to ask a much better question than how did we become this and instead begin to ask, listen, what will we become? God, what do you have in mind for us? Lead us there, lead us out. Bring us hope, bring us peace, bring us joy, bring us love. What will we become? As we ask that question and as I close, we turn to the story of someone else that set out to find a good Christmas tree. For 50 years now, 
our good friend Charlie Brown has marched around the aluminum tree farm and avoided the ones with the modern spirit. Tell me you've all seen this special. Charlie chooses instead a wooden tree that needed a good home. The LA Times reported that a week before the December 1965 premiere of A Charlie Brown Christmas, they screened it in New York for CBS where two executives watched it in stony silence. And when the lights came up, one of the bosses said, well, they gave it a good try. And in spite of that review, and in spite of the unique decision to go without a laugh track at that time, and in spite of the overt Christian themes that Charles Schultz refused to remove, the Christmas special continues to be passed along from generation to generation, doesn't it? And I think that much of the appeal comes not from Charlie's frustration, or even Linus's iconic monologue, but from the story of redemption told through a small wooden tree, cast off by everyone else, weighed down by Charlie's decoration, and brought to life by love. It's a story that rings true in our ears. Seems to me that it rings true because the illustrator Schultz and the Virgin Mary were singing the same song. A song about a better future for the hopeless and the cast off. What will we become? Maybe we could become, maybe we could just become something like that old wooden tree. A humble signpost of a better future. Maybe we could be willing to look different than the attention-grabbing sideshow being staged all around us. Maybe we could not be soul-bent over by the heaviness of the world that we break into pieces. Maybe instead we could have enough patience to wait on the movement of love in the world. And maybe then we could just find a sense of life, a new glow from the compassion and kindness that touches and sings all around us. Maybe then. Maybe that's the future we could imagine just when it seems that that time has long since passed. Amen.